Welcome to A Canadian Investing in the U.S., a podcast and YouTube channel focused on Canadians buying real estate with host Glenn Sutherland. Welcome to a new episode of A Canadian Investing in the U.S. This week, my guest is Chris McAvoy. For, to give people a bit of an intro, which I usually don't give much for intros, I usually let people introduce them themselves, but I wanted to introduce Chris uh, as my CPA. So Chris is my Canadian CPA, um, but before you think, oh, he only does the Canadian side, he is not. He is, uh, uh, maybe I'll let him go into the certifications because I'm not sure how exactly it works, but um, he is fully certified to do all the American stuff, IRS stuff. Um, so um, he, not to do name drops, but he is uh, just as certified as other guests who have been Canadian accountants or more or, or higher certification. Anyway, Chris, before I butcher this, um, maybe I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit and then we'll uh, we'll get into our topics today. Yeah, so uh, my name is Chris McAvoy. I'm a CPA here in Canada. Uh, I'm also a certified financial planner in Canada. I, uh, I'm i certified in the U.S. Uh, in that I have an enrolled agent status. That's not something that exists in Canada. Um, that's something specific to the IRS. It basically means that you're regulated directly by the IRS uh, to practice U.S. taxes. Um, for people outside the U.S., that's often one of the uh, more convenient ones to get, although um, at some point here, I'm going to finish writing my U.S. exams to get my U.S. CPA, and then I actually will be a member of a U.S. state. Um, that doesn't increase my practice rights or anything like that. Um, I already do have um, probably about three, four hundred of my own U.S. tax clients. Um, many people in the real estate space are probably most familiar with uh, our strategic partnership with Ali Ajami and Brett uh, Brent Green down at uh, GT Services. So when when I work with clients uh, that are in the cross-border real estate space specifically, I really value that strategic partnership. Their firm's really good when it comes to real estate in the U.S. Um, they're great at getting those K-1s prepared. They have a few other services they offer too, like registered agency. Um, but similar to GT Services, um, I also am what's known as a certified acceptance agent in the U.S., so that means I can help Canadians get their ITINs. So someone can see me with their passport and I can help them do that application and I can sign off on that passport. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, maybe I'll, I'll summarize that up in, in the way I look at it. You're able to work in, you're able to do taxes in Canada, you're able to do taxes in the US, you'll be able to do a bookkeeping in Canada, you'll be able to do bookkeeping in the US. Um, and also because of that, you're knowledgeable on both sides. Does that kind of sum it up? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. Great summary. <laughs> so, okay, Chris, we we wanted to talk about, I believe it was, you said 16 different topics. Um, so this, uh, for people listening, there's going to be a lot of education in this one. Um, and if anyone attended the conference last weekend, um, there was a ton of information uh, from Chris when he presented in front of everybody. Um, and I think you were probably the most swarmed person after your presentation where you had a, a good half of the conference around you asking questions. <laughs> but um Anyway, let, let, let's start Let's start going into it, unless you wanted to talk about that. Um. <laughs> uh, no, you're exactly right. There's never any shortage of uh, cross-border tax questions to go around, so I'm happy to help. Okay, so um, let's start into it. You're, there are 16 things that you wanted to try to, to educate on it. I'll let you go, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll cut in as if I have a question I have, but I think you, you're pretty good at explaining these things. Sure, yeah, the... Um... The main topic, so everything we're going to talk about here um, falls under the umbrella of should I stay or should I go? Okay. Um, this is a question that's had around many kitchen tables uh, and uh, a lot of people on both sides of the border toss this question around uh, at home with their families, with their business partners. Um, just because whenever you're talking about, you know, doing something in a different jurisdiction, you know, at some point, for a variety of reasons, the question comes up, well, is it worth, let's say, emigrating from Canada to the US? Um, I do also get a lot of questions the other way around too, uh, people who are in the US looking to maybe relocate to Canada for a variety of reasons. Right. And so pretty well everything we're gonna talk about uh, topic by topic is gonna fall under that umbrella. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first point that I would make is um, basis of taxation. So Canada taxes based on residency. So a lot of factors can go into determining if you're a tax resident of Canada. Um, 
the primary thing is your residential ties. So do you have a house? And more importantly, where does your family live? Okay. Um, secondly, it's how much time do you spend there? So the line in the sand is usually 183 days. So that's roughly six months. So when you're a Canadian resident, you're subject to tax on your worldwide income. So even though I'm a Canadian citizen, for example, if I were to move to Dubai, Canada forgets about me. I file a final tax return. I let them know that I've left. Um, you know, the day that I leave becomes essentially my immigration. Um, and as long as I know for a fact that I'm not coming back anytime soon, like I'm not just a Canadian who travels a lot or takes long vacations, uh, if I really am going there for work and I'm not planning to come back, then I file an emigrant return um, and then I start living in Dubai. As you may know, there's no taxes there, so I wouldn't be ta paying any taxes there and I wouldn't be paying any taxes in Canada because I'm no longer a resident of Canada. Right. Uh, the U.S. is a little different. Um, they tax based on citizenship, green card status, and residency. So if you're a U.S. citizen, you have to keep filing no matter where you live in the world. Um, and I'll stop and make a brief point uh, for anyone who just heard something new there. <laughs> so, um, the U.S. still has a program called the Streamline Process because many U.S. citizens are, are not up to date on this. Um, that program's existed since 2012, and it basically boils down to if you go to the U.S. government before they come to you, they'll grant you forgiveness for all sorts of penalties and interest for failure to file. Um, because many U.S. citizens even are quite surprised to learn that, you know, they're expected to file even they don't, though they haven't lived in the U.S. for years. Um, and this actually gets really kooky after a while. So, like, I've met people who are, let's say, born way up north Canada. They have an American parent. Their American swore them in at the consulate when they were a child. They've never even been to the States or seen it. And they're expected to do U.S. tax filings because they're a U.S. citizen. And they have no assets there and never met anybody from there, never never laid eyes on it, but they have to file with the IRS. Um, so it's it, that can get a little strange uh, for people who end up in that circumstance. I actually have a friend like that. His dad's American and he, they just, he never touches American soil anymore because he hasn't filed a tax return in 30 years or 40 years or whatever it is, right? Yeah, well, we won't say his name on the podcast. No, then. we won't say his name. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, he, he wouldn't be alone for sure. Many people, uh, this is news to them. And so if any U.S. citizens need some help getting caught up, uh, I'm happy to help them with that. Um, the basic provisions on that one are they're not expecting filings back to infinity. It would really be um, the last seven years of what are known as FBAR and the last three years worth of tax returns. So um, if so, if someone hasn't filed in 30 years, they don't necessarily have to do 30 years worth of filings. It would just be what I just mentioned. Um, okay. And then like, would they, if they were making, because honestly, like typically, at least the way I look at it, uh, Canadian, Canadian or Canada revenue usually charges more tax than the IRS. So it's probably like a no return. Like you're not probably not actually giving money to the IRS, right? If you've already paid taxes in Canada in that situation, um, most like most cases, I would say. Yeah, so Canada and the U.S. have a tax treaty, right, which and the purpose of tax treaties is to eliminate double taxation. And so um, you're, you're absolutely right is that more often than not, for a couple of reasons, as you mentioned, taxes in Canada are just higher usually than the U.S., right? Um, the second reason is that in Canada, you're paying federal plus your provincial taxes as part of your personal return, right? It's harmonized, whereas, um, and you're not living in a U.S. state. So really your filing obligation is only to the federal part of the U.S. government, not to a state. Right. So usually there is more than enough foreign tax to go around. Um, if you were an American, let's say living in the UAE, for example, to go back to my other example, um, there is an annual exclusion you could use, which is around 130000 a year. Um, but if you were making more than that, uh, you would actually end up owing uh, the IRS in tax. So let's say you were an American engineer living in uh, Dubai and making 200000 a year. Well, some of that will be exempt. But on the remainder of the 70000 let's say, you would be paying your federal taxes back to the IRS. So um, internationally speaking, Canadians have it on easy mode because when we leave, uh, the tax man forgets about us here. Okay. So this more like this just only applies to people who are living in a different country than they were born. 
Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that I've created a new coaching program. I believe the new coaching program has way more value than any of the programs that have even existed in the past. What we've done is pre-recorded all the lessons so that you can work through it at your own pace, which is pretty cool. And then we're going to meet up on a regular basis to answer the questions, do a deal analysis, and actually spend our time together working on things instead of spending our time learning things. I think this will make a seamless transition to buying in the United States and will help you solve a lot of your problems. If this is of interest to you, go to glensutherland.com slash coaching. I hope to help you guys invest in the United States and I hope we provide as much value as possible. Back to the podcast. Um, yeah, so like I said, Canada taxes based on residency, the US ba- taxes based on residency and citizenship. So um, so if you're a US citizen living in a different country, you would have to deal with whatever that country's tax law is, plus get square with the fact that you're still a US citizen and have to keep doing those filings. So if you lived in a country where the taxes were much lower than the IRS, let's say you lived in a an Eastern European country and your tax rate was maybe 15, 20% then you would have to make sure, number one, that it's a treaty country so that you'll be given credit for the taxes you're paying because uh, there is such a thing as non-treaty countries, right? Um, not all the countries have nice, clean agreements on these things. And so you would, if you're an American living out of country, uh, you would have to square your local tax circumstances with the treaty to try to streamline your affairs to make sure that everything you're doing plays well with the fact that you have to keep doing IRS filings. Gotcha. Um. Yeah, and so the second point that I'll make about all this is oftentimes people confuse legal status with tax status. So, for instance, in Canada, um, we don't tax based on citizenship. So if you're a Canadian citizen and you come or go, it doesn't really matter. If you're many Canadian, many Canadian residents, for instance, uh, have PR cards, they're permanent residents, right? So their taxation in Canada is based on their residency period. So even having the PR card in itself doesn't make you taxable in Canada. Like for argument's sake, let's say you got a PR card, but you never used it. You just didn't come or didn't stay. You know, you weren't here for very long. Then you may actually not be a a resident for Canadian tax purposes. Um, This is very relevant to, let's say, uh, to bring it a little closer to home, like to your group. Um, If you're a Canadian resident and you get the E2 visa, that gives you the right to live and work in the U.S., Um, so that's a legal status that says you have the legal right to to go and do that. The tax part really revolves more around how much of that you actually did. Because if you had an E2 visa and you went to the U.S. no more than 30 days a year, um, you're not going to be considered a resident of the U.S. Uh, Whereas if you went to the U.S., uh, you know, and just started living there full time, it would be relatively clear that you've emigrated from Canada for tax purposes so you'd still be a Canadian citizen, right? They don't take your citizenship away when you leave the country, right? But right. for tax purposes, you'd no longer be a resident of Canada, and then you would be a tax resident of the U.S. Um, where this starts to get tricky is if people are doing kind of a 50-50. It's like if you've ever heard of the the zebra analogy, right? Are they white with black stripes or black with white stripes, right? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it comes down to secondary and tertiary factors, so they'll look at, well, do you have a primary residence in both? Okay. And then the big one after that is where does your family reside? Uh, because even if you spend more than your 183 days in the U.S., um, that doesn't necessarily mean Canada is going to let you go. So I had one case, for instance, uh, that I worked through at great length with CRA um, where a person was working in the U.S. They had a job. Uh, it was relatively far, far away, living in Ontario working in Ohio so they bought a house over there they would stay there five days a week and come back to Canada and for the weekends yep and the sort of assumption there was well they're in the U.S. more so the U.S. did claim them they said well you're here two to 50 days a year right so you're definitely taxable here but Canada's position was we're not letting you go quite that easy so whatever the IRS didn't take we're going to take and it boiled down to well your family still lives in Canada right? You have a spouse and children in Canada, so you have not emigrated, right? So they said, well, even if you're not here quite the 183 days, you still have significant residential ties to Canada. So part of the trick here, if we're designing a residency strategy for people, it's, well, which one do you want to do? 
And how many ties do you have to reduce or cut in order to be considered a tax resident of one country or the other? So for anybody who's wondering, like, could I, let's say, live in Canada four or five months of the year and maybe the U.S. the other, you know, six or seven months of the year? And could I, in that case, be considered a non-resident of Canada for tax purposes? The answer is yes, you could. You, you could absolutely do that. So you could still be in Canada a fair bit as long as you have much stronger ties to the U.S., um, you know, much more substantial presence in the U.S., uh, owning a home, you know, family living there. Even if your family's going back and forth with you, you haven't simply left them in Canada, right? <laughs> so, uh, because that's a big factor. So um, it is possible to to not necessarily, uh, you know, cut it cold turkey, so to speak, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to have zero days in Canada anymore. Um, so... So um, to do this, if you were going to go in, uh, you know, because the idea is, in a lot of these cases when you're doing an e2 visa is to you know ideally file american taxes rather than canadian taxes um do you have to like file something with the uh, canada revenue to to actually formally sever this or do you just start filing your american taxes and hope that they're cool with that uh so in Canada, at some point, once the facts and circumstances have been met, then you would file an immigration tax return. So okay. uh, your tax returns after that, um, so let's say you still had Canadian rental properties, for instance, right? Okay. Um, and I'll, make, I'll use a simple example. Let's say you're an American and you buy a cottage in, uh, in the... Sure. Okay. Sure. So, you <laughs> it out. I, that's maybe that's a bad example now because of that thing with uh, the municipalities not wanting so many parties and stuff up there. But, but uh, somewhere in they, Canada, <laughs> they buy a cottage somewhere in Canada anyway. But, yeah. Um. So then they would file what's known as a Section Two Sixteen return. So that basically is a non-resident return where you only have to declare income that is sourced from Canada. So since the property is located in Canada, Canada still gets to tax that income first. The IRS still gets a second chance at it, but um, but as you mentioned, Canada's taxes are usually higher. So um, if you were a US tax resident, what you would do is you would file a section 216 in Canada, declare your income and expenses, pay your Canadian taxes. Then you would take that same income and expense and report it on your US return. However, you would claim uh, a foreign tax credit for whatever you'd paid to Canada, so there wouldn't be any true double tax. Gotcha. And since Canadian taxes are higher, normally that'll be more than enough to cover off your U.S. tax liability. Right? So just let me get this straight in my head. I, I might have this completely wrong, which maybe you can correct me here. So right now, I'm a Canadian. Uh, right now, I'm using an ITIN to invest in the United States. So whenever I go to file taxes, I file with the IRS first. If any any credits, I give them to you and then we file our Canadian tax returns. If I get the E2 visa and then I'm in the US and I'm, you know, over uh, half a year, I've taken my family with, you know, we've met the criteria to be <clears throat> more American than Canadian. Then I would then file my Canadian first before the US. So I start switching it around the other way. Is, am I... Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly right. Um, other than to say that your Canadian returns would only contain the Canadian sourced income. Okay. So it would only be on any Canadian entities and Canadian properties because they would still have the right to tax the, that property income because the property is located in Canada, but they would lose the right to tax your worldwide income. So yeah. right now, Canada gets to tax your Canadian properties and your American, you know, yeah. we have a structure in place to optimize that, but but they do ultimately get get a say because you're a Canadian resident subject to tax on worldwide income. Whereas if you move to the US, then uh, then you know they can tax the Canadian properties and their their uh, ability to tax you ends there essentially. Makes sense. It's the exact same opposite flip. Like right now the Americans only tax me on the American stuff that's in the US, your US sourced income. So it's the exact flip. Okay. I got it. Understand. Yeah. And so when people are evaluating well is is it better, right? Like which one's better? Should I should I do this or shouldn't I? Now that we have a little more understanding of how it works, um, it's not telling tales to out of school to say that you know the U.S. taxes are much lower. Um, the federal headline rate is lower. Um, the U.S. has more levels of tax, so you do have to be a little bit aware of that. For instance, the U.S. has federal tax, state tax, 
county tax, city tax, school tax, property tax. Um, and their property taxes in many cases are much higher than our, our property taxes in Canada because their municipalities and counties cover more things, like more services a lot of the times, um, just in terms of the way it's chopped up. So okay. um, one thing I will just say is avoid the headline rates. Um, if you really want to do this and you really want to see if you are getting a much better deal, it's not enough to just say, well, Canada's high, the U.S. is low, so off I go, right? Um, you have to know specifically where are you going, like which jurisdiction. Um, if you live, for instance, in Manhattan, um, between, like they also have a city tax there in Manhattan. So between the federal, the state, the city, and your property taxes, you may very well not be better. Um, but if you said, well, I'm going to go to Texas or Florida or something like that, um, chances are a lot of those other levels don't exist. Um, they maybe have a few other things, but the, a lot of that other stuff won't be a problem like state, county, city, school. And so you may very well be getting a much better deal. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The other thing uh, that I think sometimes doesn't get the attention is uh, sales taxes. Uh, in Canada, uh, other than maybe Alberta, like usually we're around 13 to 15%. Um, in many places in the U.S., it's more like six or eight. Um, and some don't even have any at all. For instance, Delaware famously doesn't have the sales taxes, right? So, uh, you know, good play, good reason to go shopping in Delaware. Right? Um, <laughs> I was looking but, at buying a vehicle in Delaware just to try and avoid the <laughs> vehicle uh, tax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like in the U.S., the, the states are like 52 little countries. In Canada, a lot of things are harmonized. So for instance, when you file your personal taxes, if you live in Ontario, that's your federal and your Ontario all rolled into one. Whereas in the US, they're all their own thing. So if you live in the right place in some places, let's say in Ohio, you may be filing five or six different returns because they're actually all separate returns. Um, we can use software and things like that to try to streamline it and make it easier. But ultimately, like legally, they are set up as like six different things and they all kind of self-manage. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, a bit of a red tape burden uh, and and you have to see how like different things dovetail, for instance, in the US, one large area. So, for instance, Ali's firm uh, would be more familiar with this, like looking at how the federal laws interact with the state laws, because something might be deductible federally, but not in the state and vice versa on your different returns. So US returns can be a lot of work because a lot of the time the tax stuff doesn't quite agree and it, it gets quite fiddly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Um, so a couple other things that the U.S. has that uh, doesn't exist in Canada. Um, when U.S. citizens are gifting to each other, there is such a thing as a gift tax. Um, so in Canada, we don't have a, a gift tax. We have lots of rules against income splitting, but not, not a gift tax. Um, the other thing the U.S. has is a, an estate tax. So it's pretty, pretty generous um, currently, anyway. Um, it's about uh, 12 or 13 million, uh, and it gets indexed every year. Uh, so, But if you did happen to, to pass away with more than 13 million of assets, or if it's you and a spouse twice that, um, you would actually be subject to federal estate taxation. Uh, which is different than probate. Like when, when we say a state tax in Canada or Ontario, usually we just mean court probate fees, like, gotcha. which is like a provincial rubber stamp to say like the assets were okay, basically, right? And to assign, sort of like sign off on the will. Because um, the US states have that, but then there's also a, like a real true estate tax, where if you die, it's essentially a wealth tax. Like I said, it's pretty generous, but, uh, but, um, you know, still something to be kind of aware of is there is another layer of tax there. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Also, you, you start thinking about it. You're like, if you're making, you know, more than $13 million or $26 million with you and your wife, you're like, you probably can afford to pay a little tax. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to some extent, the question is, where did it come from in the first place? Um, because that happens more often in the U.S. because they have lower income tax rates, right? So people can accumulate more during their lifetimes. Uh, between the economy and the lower taxes, you know, it's it's probably a better place to accumulate wealth. Um, so it is actually more common to have people with, you know, seven or eight figures of wealth. Because if your tax rate is 27% as opposed to 55%, you get to keep a lot more of your money and keep reinvesting it. And so... Um, 
the U.S., I believe, has the highest per capita number of millionaires of any country, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, and, and there's lots of reasons for that, you know, historical and, you know, size of the population and the way the economy works and so on. So there's lots of reasons why that's the case, but the lower tax rates are certainly, certainly uh, for anyone who's sort of more newly generating their wealth. Um, you know, if someone said, okay, I'm starting today from dollar one, well, if you're earning dollar one, you know, you're just getting into real estate, you're going to accumulate much faster as a U.S. resident than you will as a Canadian resident. Um, just because if every time you make money, you know, an extra 20, 30 points gets stripped off, that's that's less dollars to reinvest, right? Just not as much to compound over time, right? So if you sort of draw that out over a 25-year uh, arc, you know, the compounding effect becomes very noticeable. Gotcha. Um, a couple more real estate related differences. Um, since we're talking about pros and cons, um, so right now we're doing the black chips and red chips, right? Pros and cons. So right, right. In, in Canada, um, your primary residence is tax free with no limit. In the US, there actually is a limit. Um, you can work around it, but it does exist. Um, it's 250,000 per person per property. So in order to qualify in the States for this, you have to live in the property for two years. So let's say a married couple had a U.S. property. As long as it doesn't go up more than 500K in two years, right? Yep. They, they could, in theory, keep using this. Where, where Americans get to dinged with this sometimes is if you stay in one place for a long time and you don't move, right? So um, because it goes per property, right? So um, as a planning point, if you're a really good U.S. accountant, you keep track of your the fair market value of your clients and their original purchase price of their property. So if somebody's been living down on you know Maple Street for 20 years and you watch the local market, you you call them up and you say, hey, you're getting pretty close to the line here. You've been there for a long time. Maybe you do have half a million of uh, cap gains between you and your spouse. So uh, why don't you move down the street <laughs> and it resets the clock, right? So um, so if you end up over that. You know, as long as you've been there more than two years, you can sell, go to your next property, and that that sort of tax clock starts again, right? Um, yeah. So one of the things that that does that it's really designed to do is that's how they deal with flipping, where people moving into a house and living in the house and renting it and selling it, right? Because you have to be there for two years. So if you're not there for two years, you don't get anything, um, like in terms of the tax break, right? Whereas Canada just recently made the rule that you have to have lived somewhere for 12 months. Yeah, it's it's 12, months. 12 months, then it's a flip, right? Okay. So, so slight advantage in Canada there on that one, at, at least for now, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, no matter what I say in your mind, just add the word for now uh, to, to every <laughs> statement I make, because, you know, nowadays these things change like the wind. So um, lots of change, very active tax policy on both sides. Yeah, and we're recording this in November 2023, so it could be different in the, wait, we're, yes, yeah, so, no, October, we're talking October still, October 2023 still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so a um, couple other uh, big advantages to U.S. taxation. Um, number one, the brackets are much larger. So here in Canada, like, by the time you're up to, you know, uh, 80 or 100,000, you're you're starting to peak into about 30 some odd percent, maybe early 40s. Um, I'll pull up my tax chart here just so I can give some more accurate numbers. Yeah, so for example, uh, if you're over for 2023 in Ontario, if you're over 106,000, you're up to 43%. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the U.S., um, for a single person, uh, so that let's say that was Canada single. Uh, for the U.S., um, you know the top brackets are um, up to ninety-five thousand. You're looking at about twenty-two, up to a. Uh, about 22 percent and oh, then lower and then up to about 182 it's 24 percent up to 230k it's 32 percent um whereas on the canadian side um if you're up over 235 it's 55 percent or sorry 53.5 percent pardon me yeah. so um 
In the U.S., you don't hit the highest tax bracket of 37% federally until you hit 578K. Uh, <laughs> so as they say, everything's bigger in Texas, right? So, <laughs> But you're also, you just mentioned earlier, you're, you're talking now at a federal rate, but there could be state taxes and yeah. you know city taxes and other taxes. Yeah, so it it's still worth doing a comparison because, um, you know, some states don't have any tax like Florida and Texas. Other ones have relatively low tax, maybe like single digits of tax. So um, it's it's really worth a comparison. And you're right that you have to look at a lot more factors on the U.S. side. But there are jurisdictions where what I just quoted is more or less what you would be paying. Um, so you can jurisdiction shop a little in the states for either no tax states or low tax states. Um, so to keep that but relatively the, moderate. The, the, your, if you have a rental property, it's going to be taxed based on where the rental property is, not where you live, correct? Uh, based on the source of the income, yes. So, um, so you would still have to do a little bit of a reconciliation there um, if you live in a state. Yeah. Because if you're a tax resident of a state, then they also do get some say. Uh, <laughs> So, so there's sort of an interstate reconciliation to do there, but, but the short answer is yes. If your rental property is in a particular state, you will be filing and paying in that state, not on all of your statewide income, right. Uh, as opposed to nationwide, right. But you would be, if you have a, a rental property in uh, New York state, you'll be filing a New York state tax return for that property. Right. Even if you live in a different state, for instance. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, the one big one that I've sort of been building up to here, so for those who are still tuned in, uh, you, <laughs> it's been worth the wait, um, the US 1031 exchange. Um, this one. this doesn't really work for Canadian residents, um, especially not with the new FAPI regime. Um, if a Canadian used this, there would be a really bad mismatch of uh, foreign tax credits. Whereas if you're a U.S. resident, it opens up this possibility to use the 1031 exchange. So basically, the 1031 exchange allows you to um, use the Burr method, right, where you buy, rental, refinance, rent. And as long as there's a holding period, so not like true flipping, but as long as there's a little bit of a holding period, um, you can then trade that that property up for the next property. So let's say you can liquidate, use the money as a down payment for a bigger property. As long as there's enough similarity in the properties um, and the rules are not that firm on that, like there's a pretty good amount of space in there. Um, as long as you can keep doing that, um, you can keep trading up on a tax deferred basis. So it essentially allows you to like supercharge your real estate portfolios growth essentially, because you can just keep, keep, uh, you know, keep trading up, keep trading up and the taxes will be due sort of at the very end, almost like a game of tax musical chairs, right? It would only be at the very end of the life of the portfolio. If you do some liquidating, then, then the tax would get paid up. Yeah. And that would, and I guess the idea from that is to, it would keep you in a lower tax bracket all the way through. And um, you, you kind of touched on this briefly that just uh, Canadians don't, shouldn't do, or like, if you're a resident of Canada, it, it probably isn't advantageous to do 1031 exchange. And this is how I understood it. And so maybe you, I'll say it and you can correct me where I'm wrong. But my, from what I understood is that if you did the 1031 exchange in the US, the IRS, you know, they'd be fine with it. But the, you know, on that sale, Canada Revenue would want to tax you on that sale. So, and then, so you'll get your taxes now in Canada and then you'll get your taxes later from the IRS at some point. So technically you're just double taxing yourself am i kind of on the right page there yep that that's exactly the problem so that's why canada that's why canadian residents shouldn't shouldn't be using those yeah and i know that there's like ways that people talk about setting up blocker codes and other things but uh, as a probably a general rule it's probably just easier to stay away um yeah so up until recently i would have said uh, uh maybe on all that but especially with the new fapi regime um I, this would be an absolute no-go for Canadian residents anymore. <laughs> In the past, maybe. Now the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Because I've heard about people like if you get, it's really technical, you can do it. Um, and you just have to have the right structure. You have to do a lot of things right in order to do this. Um, but you just talked about that FAPI uh, regime. Maybe like for people who are like, what the heck is Chris talking about? What is that? Sure. So Canada has uh, what's known as the Foreign Accrual Property Income Tax Regime. 
So you can almost think of it as like another side calculation on all of the regular transactions that you're doing. So if you're, um, let's say you have a Canadian holding company and then you uh, invest into a US entity and then that US entity has some rental properties, um, to some extent, basically what's gonna happen is that even if you don't bring any money back across the border into Canada, you still have to do a calculation on your Canadian holding company return that says, what was the income? What was the expenses? How much foreign tax did you pay? And if you didn't pay more than about 50% of tax, they're going to assess that. You can lower that down to about 19 or so um, by doing uh, by paying yourself some dividends. But a simple way to explain it is they're kind of treating it like your Canadian entity made the passive income, even though that's not what happened. Because in a normal circumstance, if you have a Canadian holding company, you earn passive income uh, in Ontario. Tax headline rate is 50.17%. Then uh, if you pay yourself dividends, you get the refundable dividend tax of 30.67. So it lowers it down to about a 19.5% corporate tax rate. And then you would obviously have to pay personal tax on those dividends you pulled out. And so this is sort of meant to prevent people from uh, getting cute by, let's say, um, you know, if I'm a Canadian, I say, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to open a corporation, you know, in a tax haven country somewhere, um, and I'll earn all my passive income there. And now I don't have to pay any Canadian taxes. Ha, beat the system, right? So wrong. <laughs> so th this legislation basically says, well, if that's what you did, uh, or anything similar to that, then we're basically going to tax you anyways. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> in, in a not very in in a not very favorable way. Okay. So, and with, and with that yeah. said, the U.S. is not a tax haven. It has tax rates. They're just lower than the Canadian ones. Yeah. So th this is sounding like um, my tax bill might be more expensive this year. Like this FAPI, this is a fairly new tax, right? Um. So it's existed for uh, several years. It's just the calculations are different for 2023 than they were in the past. So, um, so if you if you haven't discussed this with your accountant already, you really should. Uh, for anyone who's listening, because this is definitely a change from last year. Um, there are things you can do to mitigate this. For instance, looking at maybe compensating yourself for your time, either using a management company or uh, through payroll, or deciding maybe to take dividends out of your Canadian holding company, uh, as opposed to another source. Uh, a very common structure that people have in Canada is maybe if they're self-employed, they have an opco and then they have a holding company. Um, a fix here could be as simple as saying, well, if you're on payroll in your operating company, maybe just cancel that and start taking dividends out of your holding company so that at least you can get ready to claim all that recoverable tax um, on that FAPI. Um, if it's justifiable based on the level of work that you're doing, then management fees might be an option too. So um, there's things you can do to massage this down, but you can't make it entirely go away. Yeah. So yeah, where the way I look at this whole thing, and it's about having a CPA that understands this, right? If you if your CPA doesn't understand um, investing in the U.S., if your CPA doesn't know anything about FAPI. Uh, FERPTA, any of these things that exist in the U.S., um, you probably should be getting someone who is because it's going to cost you more than the uh, than the taxes you're going to uh, then the the tax returns and the expense you're going to pay to the CPA is going to be much lower than the uh, the fees you're going to incur if you're not set up and doing this correctly. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, and I would say make sure you're dealing with someone that really knows the cross border because. Um... There's lots of areas where there can be gaps in the treaty, gaps in the treatment, um, yeah, or just simply failure to file penalties. If someone's not aware they're supposed to be doing something, uh, the IRS and Canada both have very stiff penalties for missing uh, the filings. Um, the the one the big one this week, uh, as it happens, is the uh, this year October thirty first is the deadline for these new uh, UHT filings here in Canada, the underused housing tax. So uh, if you haven't had a discussion with your accountant about those, uh, those would only be for Canadian properties, not not American properties. So, um, but yeah, it's worth having a discussion for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I think a lot of people, it's one of the big questions people do as they start investing in the US. They're like, do I need to, to get a new accountant? Um, and I don't like to say yes, but sometimes yes. Sometimes you need to... Uh, 
you need someone that's that's uh knows more than you do about this you shouldn't be it shouldn't be at a spot where you're trying to listen to a podcast and educate your accountant so that I file this to set this up properly it's much better to use someone who's uh, experienced and understands what you're what they're talking about than uh, um it, it just it doesn't make any sense uh, and i see this all the time even with some of my students that they're like i'm trying to convince my accountant to do this for me and i'm going it's not about that. It's about doing it the right way. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, there's a lot of people that are not set up properly and are not paying doing this. And then they have accountants that don't understand anything except for Canadian accounting or Canadian, um, or Canadian, you know, pro rental properties. Right. And you, you start mixing in some American ones and you may have outgrown your, 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 your team. Yeah, it happens. And I mean, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why, uh, People like dealing with our firm because we are a cross-border firm, but we also value our relationship with GT Services. So that way we 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 dovetail together nicely, provide a nice streamlined service, and uh, we don't really spend any time trying to talk you out of doing any of this. Uh, we just we're more so focused on good planning to make sure that you know everything is set up well. Because even though there are maybe administrative costs to related to all this, in U.S. real estate is a great market. It's a great way to make money. I mean, we can talk about tax forms and tax rates, you know, until the cows come home, but you have to make the money first. Right? So, <laughs> um, so, you know, saying that, well, you should just invest in, in your local market because it's easier. Well, that'll save you a few accounting fees, but it might be fraught with problems other than that. So you should always like do, do, you know, do what makes sense from a business case perspective. Don't, don't let the, the, the tail wag the dog uh, when it comes to taxes, you know? Um, and that's maybe we can, uh, I do have a few more technical points, but we can stop and give some life advice too, which is... Um, sure, let's do some life advice. Which is, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes people see the lower rates in the US and they get really excited. Um, or for many other reasons, maybe people get frustrated with something in their life, something locally, something politically, and they just kind of decide one day out of the blue, that's it, I'm out of here, grass is greener on the other side, right? Um, and off they go. Um, that doesn't typically go as well as, you know, well-planned, well-thought-out things. Um, you know, if you want to do this, um, before anything else, you know, do some travel, L look around, make a few friends. Um you know, stay a few different places. Like you said, maybe buy some property, right? Um, you can shift your tax affairs over time. It doesn't have to be a, you know, an overnight kind of thing, right? So, you know, build up that familiar, make those ties, you know, you know, meet some more local professionals, get your network set up, you know, and talk about it with your family. You know, like if this is an ongoing thing, you know, use this podcast as a touchstone so that you can have a, an educated, informed discussion as a family, instead of just kind of a spitballing about, oh, I wonder how this works, I wonder how that works. And that's, you're not necessarily gonna be able to make a decision on that, but now that you're armed with some facts, right? You can have some really serious, uh, well thought out family discussions around whether or not some of these things make sense because even the economics isn't the end of the story, right? You need one, some of the questions I get asked about more is like quality of healthcare versus cost of healthcare, um, you know, schools, crime rates, all this kind of stuff. These are all factors, right? And so um, sometimes people will also go the other way. They'll say, well, I lived in Toronto and I really liked it. And then I moved to, to some small town in the USA. Uh, it was it was kind of, it was boring. I didn't like it. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, Toronto, gorgeous. Yeah. you know, to Toronto compared to, you know, some small town with 2000 people in it, you know, maybe it isn't as exciting. You might be absolutely right. Uh, so you have to, you have to compare apples to apples and try some things out, um, you know, and, and talk about it as a family, because truthfully, there is a lot of value here to be had. Um, um, there is a, a lot of strong tax reasons and financial reasons and other advantages to that um, in the U.S., but I mean, it has to be a holistic plan, right? And you have to have your, your professionals and your family members and uh, your other, you know, other relationships all on board with this. If you have other business partners, you know, you have to see if there's any impact there. Um, so it's, it's some, it's a broad, broad topic and it deserves a lot of thought, but you don't have to go, you know, overnight, you can sort of ease into it, um, you know, get to know the local areas and things like that. So that's, 
that's my biggest piece of life advice is don't just sort of get upset and go without a plan because it won't work out. There are things will come up that you weren't intending on. You won't have solutions ready. Um, even simple things like, oh, we got here and now we're waiting on my spouse to get a work visa, right? Or now we're waiting to put my kids in school or something like that, right? If you go without a plan, you're going to hit all kinds of uh, immigration related roadblocks, right? Whereas if you go if you make a decision, you know, and execute a one year or a two year plan to say, this is what we really do. Um, if you want to do it smooth, if you want to do it tax efficient, if you want to do it in such a way that you don't have regrets and you're not constantly running into a, you know, unplanned events, right, then then make a plan, talk about it, get really determined and execute it over a period of time, right? And And build some familiarity, like don't you know, for anyone who's ever been an immigrant, they'll tell you packing up your bags and going somewhere you don't know anyone, you don't have any contacts, um, you know, you're not familiar with. It's it's hard. It's a hard experience. Um, yeah. As part of life learning, I think everyone should do that, actually, even just for a few months in their life. Right. They would have uh, yeah. it, it adds a great deal <laughs> of perspective. Right. But but I mean, that's that's sort of a life learning experience. If you want to do it and you want it to work, you know, plan and ease into it. Right? I love it. Cool. Did, did you want to cover more technical stuff or do you, you think that's enough? What do you think? Um, I've got one or two more, uh, yep. one or two more technical points. Um, in Canada, we don't have a true joint filing between spouses. So in Canada, income splitting with your spouse is always a, a, a very thorny topic. People say, well, can I give my spouse dividends? Can I give my spouse wages? And we have to try our best to say, well, fill out your timesheets, you know, get them more involved in the business, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? This is an ongoing thing. In the US, you can just slice and dice that issue and file a married filing jointly return. So the IRS has it set up such that you can just file like one big family tax return, so to speak. They double all the brackets, double all the credits. They just double everything and say, okay, well, uh, if you want to be taxed as a family unit, then go ahead. You know, we recognize the family unit as an economic unit. Um, so it's a little easier to organize as a family and approach it that way on a tax basis. Um, as opposed to like in Canada, sometimes people run into the problem. They'll say, well, my spouse makes a good paycheck, but maybe not enough that one of us cannot work or something like that because a lot of it gets eaten up in taxes. Whereas you can say, well, we're gonna balance out our family responsibilities with our income earning, uh, as a team and be taxed accordingly. So in the U.S., it's a lot more tax efficient to, as a family for for people who are like, let's say, you know, you're both involved in rental properties, for instance, right? Or maybe uh, one spouse is doing rental properties and the other one has a job, right? As long as they can gain some employment, um, then you can be taxed as a unit and you can, you know, you can do it that way. Um, the only time that's a downturn is that you're both on the hook for each other's taxes effectively. They have what's known as joint and several liability. So if your spouse has been filing joint returns and you've been signing them, make sure they're getting paid. <laughs> because that, if there, especially if there's ever a marital breakdown, that is a, a problem, right? Because if you go through a separation and all of a sudden you learn your spouse hasn't been paying both halves of the taxes for the last few years, uh, that can be very problematic. Huh. Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so that's in the U.S. In Canada, we're each our own person, right? You can share some credits back and forth, like disability credits, medical credits. But at the end of the day, in Canada, your return is yours. Your spouse's is their spouse's. Um, and there's no, like, we file one big family return kind of thing. That doesn't exist here. Yeah. 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 So the liability would be separate then, too. Yeah, exactly. And so my my last sort of point here would be, if someone says, well, We've talked about it. This all sounds good. Um, how does it work if we want to do this, or where does it where does it start? Um, so first, you should have a discussion with uh, with your accountant. Uh, the second thing is uh, be advised that when you emigrate from Canada, you are deemed to have disposed of your assets. So once you pick that that uh, special day, right, that this is my last Canadian tax day, right, you're deemed to have sold off what you have. But there is quite a list of exceptions. So on that list of exceptions is, for instance, if you have RSPs, those are not deemed to have been disposed of. You can leave those in Canada. Right? Right. The withholding tax part works differently. Like if you go to withdraw as a non-resident, they'll take out 25%. Um, as opposed to the rates are lower if you're a, rated, a resident of Canada. Oh, okay. Same thing with if you own rental properties in Canada, for instance, right? 
um, you're not deemed to have disposed of those when you leave. You can elect to pay up your capital gains one day when you sell the property. So that's one of those nice deferrals. So if you say, well, I do have a lot of property in the US, but I have some in Canada too, you won't have a big tax bill to pay on your way out on those. You'll pay up on that one day when you sell the properties. That is interesting because that's one thing I did not know because I always hear about people when they're going to, you know, go to the US and change their um um citizen not citizenship but their residency that they're going to have to pay a huge amount to uh for disposing of all those Canadian assets even though so I did not know that you could uh, you could defer that. Yeah, so the ones that get hit the hardest would be let's say you had a portfolio of uh, regular investment accounts like an open account, so not an RSP, then you would be deemed to have disposed of those um, and there would be a capital gain on that. Um, but you can do some planning around that too. For instance, you can do an RSP contribution to help offset some of those capital gains on the way up. So right. there's there's lots of planning you can do. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, sell your house, then move. Don't move, then sell your house. Uh, because if you leave Canada, now you're a non-resident of Canada. When you, Even when you sell your primary residence, you can claim the primary residence exemption. But as a non-resident, uh, they're going to take the Canadian version of the non-resident withholding tax. So you're going to have to wait several months to get 15 or 25% of your proceeds on your house sale if you do it, oh. <laughs> if you do it in that order. As opposed, because if you've left already for let's say six months and you're saying, yeah, I'm no longer a resident of Canada, well then, uh, you know, the lawyer is going to do what they're obligated to do when a foreigner, right, a foreigner, uh, a newly foreigner to Canada, to Canada, right, yeah. sells their property, they're going to withhold that tax and it's going to take you some time to get it back. So sell your house, then move. It's <laughs> a good tip. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that's all I had for today, uh, Glenn. Okay, perfect. Well, um, Chris, I I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of information to get through here. Um, and honestly, even just coming up with a title for this is going to be complicated because we talked about so many different uh, topics in here. But um, I know that everyone had a, a lot of information. Um, we kind of touched on this already, but if you uh, if you've outgrown your accountant, uh, Chris obviously is someone who uh, understands what's going on, understands what's going on both sides of the country, understands if you want to move, understands if you want to stay, um, understands both ways that this works, uh, doing cross-border accounting. Um, maybe, Chris, let's uh, give everyone a bit of your, your contact information, how they would even get a hold of you um, to to continue this conversation, or maybe not even you, but your, your firm uh, to, to have a conversation to see if this is a fit. Absolutely. So the best way to get a hold of me is if you go to our website, uh, leapact.ca. Uh, so it's L-E-A-P-A-C-T.ca. Fill out our customer contact form. And uh, one of the options in there will be to talk about uh, U.S. tax or uh, cross-border tax. So fill that out. Uh, give a brief uh, description of your situation and we'll get back to you for a free consultation and uh, we'll take it from there. Perfect. Well, like I said, Chris, tons of information, tons of value. Um, there's literally no one, uh, no one who listened to this knew all of this stuff. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> there's there's so much to learn, but I, I truly appreciate you coming on the show. There's a ton of value. Always glad to be here, and thanks so much for the invitation, man. That was a nice video. Bye.